Charles Spurgeon, such pronounced suffering through their years in their ministry. It is something of a, of a depression of sorts. It is a crisis of faith, fundamentally, the dark night of the soul, a crisis of the felt absence of God, the felt absence of God, and that is a crisis indeed. And it needs to be said that it is far more common, the dark night of the soul is far more common for the Christian than many of us realize or are even perhaps willing to, to recognize and to admit. And that's vital for us to admit and to recognize. That may surprise you to know that it is hardly uncommon for the Christian to experience such times in his or her life. It may surprise you, but I hope that this will also comfort you in knowing that the Lord knows this. He knows this, and He gladly guides us through it. Psalm 77 is where we are here this morning. Psalm 77. I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety. There are 20 verses here. If you want to turn there in your Bible now, uh, Psalm 77. Hear now the Word of God. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for these few minutes that we have to begin this week in this really, really good way. Time in your word. And we ask that you would be our teacher. We ask that you would 
stir within us. Uh, we ask that you would churn up the soil, making it receptive, the soil of our hearts, making it receptive to the seed of your word, and that you would bring forth great fruit. There are some perhaps surprising things here. Perhaps even it's surprising to some of us that such passages, such psalms would even be in the Bible. And we thank you for such sweet surprises, and we thank you for such psalms. And we ask that you would help us to learn what it is to live in them and to encourage one another out of this. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. The Lost City of Z is a film made just a few years ago. I don't know how many of you may have seen it. Uh, it's based on based on the true story of a British explorer by the man by the, excuse me by the name of Percy Fawcett. He is uh, was sent to Brazil in in 1906. Went back several times after that, looking for the supposed uh, ancient lost the supp supposed lost city. The supposed lost city deep, deep, deep in the, in the heart of the Amazon. Percy became just absolutely, uh, Percy Fawcett became absolutely just obsessed with this, uh, willing to leave his wife and his young children behind back in England for, for, uh, for years at, at a time. He was obsessed with this. It was absolutely horrendous, uh, hazardous, dangerous excursions out into the, the, the depths of the Amazon jungle. You could imagine uh, the, the, um, the creatures, the dangerous creatures, the animals out there, that some of which he'd never heard of, never, certainly never encountered. Dangerous, uh, threatening natives, um, terrain, uh, the long distances, uh, maps that were a little fuzzy in places, if just plain wrong. And compounded all in all those things, of course, being the early 1900s, hardly having any of the tools that we today would just take for granted on such an expedition. I was watching that film just a few weeks ago. I, I couldn't help but think on several occasions, oh my goodness, this, this band of men and uh, Percy Fawcett would do so well, do so, so well to have a guide, to have a guide who knew his way through that jungle and who would stick with them the whole way. Brings us to our text, Psalm 77. Psalm 77, you, some of you may know that the, the Psalms, all 150 of them, sometimes referred to as the Psalter, the Psalter was the songbook for God's covenant people. And one-third of the 150 Psalms that we have in the Psalter are laments. One-third. It's the largest category of psalms within the overall Psalter. Laments. And they surprise you. That should tell us something. It should tell us something. Uh, it should instruct something perhaps as to uh, the type of scriptures that we read and the frequency that we read them and the, the, the songs that we sing and what perhaps, you know, the, how the psalms might want to really should be shaping the songs that, that we ourselves sing. Uh, it should be incredibly instructive to us to recognize that one-third of the psalms, the songbook that God has given to His covenant people, are actually laments. That should really be incredibly instructive to us. Uh, we really should pay heed to that. Obviously, in case you didn't know, 
the Christian life is not always easy. And the very proportionality of the Psalter should tell us something of that. The fact that the Christian life is not always so easy. Well, with that, we have a guide. We do have a guide, unlike this crew that was going down in the early 1900s into the depths of the Amazon. We do, in fact, have a guide who knows his way through the jungle and promises to stick with us the whole way through. The Lord knows well the struggles of this journey. He knows well the struggles of this journey, and He shows us the way forward. Knowing well the struggles of this journey, the Lord shows us the way forward. Now, what is this way? What does it look like? What are the markers along the trail? Where there are three. Yeah, there are three, and if you saw the outline in the bulletin that we posted yesterday, you can see it there, and we're gonna, that's the direction that we're going over the next few minutes. The first marker on this trail is the Lord leads us forward as He guides us through the, the pains and struggles that come upon us at many times, quite frequently in the Christian life. The first marker would be the place of lamentation, the place of lamentation. The second thing being the need for meditation And the third thing being the way of resolution. So those three, lamentation, meditation, resolution. Those three. We're going to take those in in turn over the next few minutes. So let's start then with the place of lamentation. Now this may, again, be surprising to you. But it is so sweet, so freeing to see this here. And the emphasis upon this reality in the Psalter and in this particular psalm as well. There's such honesty on display in Psalm 77, such beautiful honesty. Just look again with me at verses 1 to 3. Let's read that again. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Such beautiful honesty here. The psalmist is not afraid. He's not afraid. He's not bottling this up. There's a great, rich relational history between him and the Lord. So he's not afraid. And he's not silent. He is not silent. He is not pretending. He is praying through his pain. Such sweet honesty on display here. Such openness on display here as, as well. Uh, so instructive for us. Again, let's pick up in where we left off. Verses 4 through 9. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search Here come these questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? You see what's happening here is that His memories are painful. Memories that at one time were pleasant are now painful to Him. His past joys as he reflects on things, now bring him present sorrow. You ever felt that way? 
And that elicits these hard questions, these pointed rhetorical questions, six of them. Now, the questions, raising the questions, they, they almost answer themselves when you, when you read, the, when you think through what the questions are. But it still, still, you have to say that not only are, is this for the psalmist are his past joys stirring up, uh, colliding. His past joys are colliding with his present sorrow. But his past certainties are colliding with his present circumstances. I don't understand What's going on here? He's gripped with confusion. He's battling bewilderment. And he's speaking very candidly about it. Very honestly. Very openly. And again, this may be so surprising to us. Because again, this is the prayer book that God, the song book that God has given to his covenant people, showing us, guiding us through the jungle the difficulties, the pains, the struggles that any and all of us may go through at any time, perhaps even for significant periods of time in the Christian life. It's beautifully freeing, beautifully instructive. Think with me about John 11. Uh, John 11 is a beautiful, long chapter where we read of Jesus' raising of his friend Lazarus. Do you remember... Before we get, he gets to the raising of Lazarus, he, he has a, a conversation with one of uh, Lazarus' sisters, Martha, and then he has a second conversation with Lazarus' sister, Mary. Do you remember what Mary said to Jesus? Do you remember? John 11, verse 32. John 11, verse 32. It's almost kind of cheeky what Mary says. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I'd say that's pretty honest. That's pretty open. It's something of a lament. Now, how does Jesus respond to Mary? Does he refuse to acknowledge her? Does he reject her? Does he rebuke her? No. No, you keep reading on into uh, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Friends, we need to understand that that is still the way that Jesus responds to his lamenting people. That is still the way he responds to his lamenting people. Did you know that it takes faith to lament? Think with me. It takes faith to lament, biblically understood. It begins with with feeling the pain, knowing and owning the sorrow, not pretending, not burying it, owning it. And then holding that intention with what you know to be true of the Lord. You see? The tension? And going to Him and talking to Him about it. It takes faith to lament. And that's one of the key points that we see here 
in what Jesus is providing to his people still today, walking us through this. Knowing the struggles of the journey, the Lord shows us the way forward. Now, that then takes us to the, the next marker, the next marker, the next place on the trail. And that's the place, the need, excuse me, the need for meditation. The need for meditation, moving from the place of lamentation to the need for meditation, for meditation. And we see this, it's the turning point of the whole psalm. It turns right here. It turns right here. This is where the theme, the flow of it just shifts radically. Verses 10 through 12. Then, that's a clue. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Again, that's the turning point. It's the hinge on which the whole psalm and the psalmist's heart turns. Right here. Right here. This meditating that's made up of two parts, at least two parts, an appealing and a remembering, an appealing and a remembering, an appealing. What, what, what do we mean by that? He uses that phrase there in verse 10. What, what do we mean? Well, you know, in a course, in a legal context, what it means to appeal. It's when at the ruling of a lower court, uh, some group does not find to be satisfactory, so they appeal it, the ruling, to a higher court, hope, hoping for something different. So if an attorney receives a, a verdict that he or she does not feel is just or right or equitable or whatever that may be, they appeal it. They're looking for a different verdict, a different ruling. Well, what in the, how does that work here, you may be wondering? Who's the lawyer? Who's the judge? Who's the jury? Okay, think with me. What the psalmist is doing here is he's appealing the ruling of his own heart that has said it's pointless, it's meaningless, that God has left you. He's appealing that, he's protesting that. He finds that ruling, that verdict to be completely unsatisfactory. He knows it can't be right. It can't be right. And so he begins to remember. From the, in, the, in the appeal, he begins to remember. And, and this remembering is a, is a deep remembering. It's not just a recitation of facts. The psalmist even uses, he does use the word pondering. Pondering. He lets it churn. He lets it stir. He lets it fester. He, he just won't let it go, these realities, these things that he deeply, deeply knows. And it's a deep remembering. It's an historical, if I can put it this way, a historical remembering. It's not untethered from the truth. And this is the key difference between just generic meditation and biblical meditation. Biblically, meditation does not involve the emptying of the mind, but the filling of it. The filling of it with Scripture. Letting God speak to the troubled heart. There's a key thing in this. It is not untethered from the truth, and it is not just an emptying and a wiping of the slate clean. No. No, heaven forbid. It is a filling. It is a filling of, of the mind. Well, in this case, what do we see him filling with? 
Well, it's so clear. You see it there in verse 10. The years of the right hand of the Most High. Well, what would that be? Well, he goes on to tell us in verses 11 and 12, the deeds of the Lord, the, His wonders of old, His work, His mighty deeds. He's calling upon God's prior works, how God has shown, who God has shown Himself to be and what God has, has done. And again, this is the turning point. As he makes his way through the lamentation, the stage of meditation. It's time of, of meditation. A message like this might sound like it's from outer space to the crazy, busy people of planet Earth. And I say that because meditation, by definition, demands we slow down. It demands time. It demands time where we stop, we slow down, we begin to ask, ask the Lord to take the truths of Scripture and to work them deep, deep, deep into the recesses of our heart. And that sort of work, that sort of time, that sort of effort is so completely foreign to most of us. Think about what it's been like these last few weeks in the time of shelter in place, right? And so many of us thought to ourselves, oh, I have all this extra time on my hands and I'm going to, to spend some more time in God's Word and in prayer. And, you know, maybe, I don't know if you use the word meditate, but it was something like that. And how, hard, how well did that go for you? How natural was that to you? Probably not in very much at all. Because it's so foreign. It's so hard for us to slow down, to sit with the Lord in His Word, because we are crazy busy and thinking so much that has to happen revolves around what we do, as opposed to just being, just being with Him. And in particular, in the process, in the time of working our way through the sorrow and the angst and the pain moving through the lamentation and letting the hinge, the turning point come in a time of meditation where we appeal and we remember. But this is what the Lord is showing us. This is the, one of the markers on the trail. One of the key, it is the key marker, really, in the trail of this time of meditation. Again, again, what we're seeing here is that the Lord knows the struggle, the struggle of the journey. And so He's showing us the way forward. Lamentation, meditation, that allows us to begin to move towards a, a place of resolution, oh, the way towards resolution. After all, where does the psalmist cast his gaze? Where does he begin to look? Where are his eyes fixed, right? Well, in the midst of his present sorrows, he's looking back to the past. I alluded to that already, but we need to go further with that now because this is really where it comes out, and it's in verses 13 through 20. I'm going to read all of that just to start us off with verses 13 to 15 because that sets up everything else that comes. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And he goes on from there to do what? To paint a picture, a poetic, if I can mix the metaphors, a poetic picture these wonderful, beautiful, powerful images of the Exodus. 
That's what he's describing there in, in verses 16 through 20. The way through the sea, Mount Sinai, the thunder, the lightning, the shaking, the waters, the sea, the earth, all of that. It was the greatest event, salvific event, showing forth God's mercy up to that point. Up to that point. And so that's what he casts his gaze towards. That's what he puts his, his thoughts towards. And as he does so, what happens? Two things. A regaining and refocusing. A regaining and a refocusing. A regaining of his perspective. A regaining of his sanity, frankly. And you can see that as you go back. And if you just sit and read the whole psalm, verses 1 to 20, and just let this flow sink in on you. And when you begin to look at just verses 1 through 9... You see his uh, a self-occupation. It's striking how many times you see the first person singular pronoun used in verses 1 through 9. I, me, my. It, it, it comes up nearly every line. That's what pain does, right? It causes us to be fixated on ourselves. It narrows the focus. It makes us nearsighted. It's, it's understandable. It happens to all of us. But what happens over the course of this psalm, as his sanity and perspective is recovered, you see an a, a, amazing, dramatic shift from his, this preoccupation with self to a preoccupation with God. The first person singular pronouns begin to shift, dying down towards second person singular pronouns. The I to you, me to you, you, O Lord. Because his, his sanity and his perspective is being regained, which, of course, is, is the place of wisdom, right? Because all of reality is about the Lord. He is the gravitational force of everything that there is. Everything in its right orbits circles around him. So that to the degree we are occupied with him, we are actually sane and are beginning to recover our perspective. So you see this re regaining, and you see this refocusing, and you see that in particular at the end where he lands the psalm, how it comes to a stop and where it comes to a stop. Verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It's as though once he gets to that point, it's as though the psalmist says, that's it. That's it. That's what I've needed all, all along. Not just the assurance of your overwhelming power, but your steady presence. Not just the conviction that you are above me in everything, but you are the assurance that you are beside me every step of the way. That's so striking, and to the degree that he is able to grasp that, that then is enough. Because if, if all that is true, then he can know as he moves forward and as he reflects on what is and what's going on, he can know that whatever else is happens, whatever else is going on, the Lord will never let him go. The Lord will never let him go. And the, the, the effect of this is his troubles begin to shrink now note, there's nothing said here that they've gone away. 
There's nothing said here that his circumstances and his setting, his context has actually changed. That's not said, but rather his perspective, his view, his understanding, how he's engaging those things. That has radically changed. So his troubles, while they may not be disappearing, they have shrunk, relatively speaking, to the greatness and grandeur of God's grace and his promises and assurances, such that his troubles, real as they are, do not compare and cannot compete. That's the way through. That's what the Lord is showing us here. That's how you get the way, get to the, the way of resolution. You go through lamentation, you go through the meditation, and you get to, you learn the way of resolution. For the psalmist, of course, he, again, was calling back upon what was, for him at that time, the greatest act, the greatest demonstration of God's power and grace, the Exodus. What is it for us? Now, we can certainly call back upon that, absolutely. That's as much in the flow of time and space, history, as it is for him. But what about us? For him, because of where he was in the time and flow of time of history, he was but looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And all of these events that he's hearkening back to, great as they are, are ultimately but preparatory, foreshadowing, this great Messiah to come, who has come, and we know his name is Jesus, and we, we can have our sanity perspective, we can regain, we can refocus because of his coming, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, and the promise of the assurance of his return. Knowing well, again, the struggles of the journey, the Lord shows us the way forward. If I can put it like this, behind all of our seeking of Him is His seeking of us. What's driving ultimately all of our yearning for Him is His yearning for us. Our pursuit of Him only, is only real because He is pursuing us already. The Bible is very clear on all of that. Time and again, we see that the Lord knows this path. He's walked it. We, we read of that very clearly. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're in the Gospels and the historical writings reflected on there in, in Acts and the epistles. He knows this path. He has walked it, and He calls us to follow Him on that path and to be our guide as we go, and to be our guide as we go. Some of you may be familiar with these, these wilderness excursions, right, where uh, perhaps you have a, a guide of some kind, and then you go off, they take you off on a bus and way out in the, literally the middle of nowhere, and they say, okay, we're going to leave you here with this minimal amount of equipment. We're going to leave you here for some, you know, decided upon, agreed upon period of time, and it's up to you to fend for yourself and figure it out. And the idea with these wilderness excursions and it's, it's, you know, why people sign up for these kinds of things is, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. Okay, that's fine. Have at it. Here's the deal. The journey of faith doesn't work that way. If you try and go on the journey of faith 
trying to figure it out and fend for yourself, it will kill you. It will kill you. And knowing that, Jesus, as our guide, never steps away, never leaves us to fend for ourselves or to figure it out. So much so, along the way, He gives us the very words to pray. The very words to pray. To express our pained, aching hearts, the very words to express that. And the very words to transform and restore our aching, broken hearts, bringing us all the way through, all the way through. And at the end, knowing Him better and loving Him all the more for it. My friends, He knows, Jesus knows the struggles of the journey. And He shows us the way through it. Let's pray together. Lord, You are the man of sorrows, the suffering servant. Those names You took upon Yourself, and certainly it is demonstrated in Your life and ministry. The man of sorrows, the suffering servant, our older brother, our friend, our guide, our shepherd. You know the path. You know the struggles. You know us. You know our weaknesses. You know our needs. You know the way through. As the shepherd, as the guide, we ask that you would continue to show us how to process our pain and how to pray through it. Here you're showing that you intend to engage the whole of us and to change us in the process as we learn what it is to lament and to meditate and make our way through to resolution. We thank you. Give us ears with which to hear. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I trust that this was a good way for us to spend uh, this time together and to start the week off together. Uh, we're going to have one song played now for you, and uh, then in just a few minutes after that, we're going to start up one of our fireside chats. The Lord be with you.